Okay, we're talking about uh, fruit today. So I, I bet you know this feeling. Uh, you bring home a box of perfect, plump, red strawberries from the store, and you bite into one, and you're disappointed. Um, it looked nice, but it's not as flavorful or sweet as you thought it would be. Why is that? Well, I looked it up. Um, apparently, American farmers, through crossbreeding and genetic modification, have worked to produce some of the biggest, reddest, and most luscious-looking strawberries. But in the process, they've focused so much on the looks of the strawberries that their flavor and their sweetness have been sacrificed. So now we have strawberries that look wonderful on the outside, but are nowhere near as sweet or flavorful on the inside as they used to be. This is somewhat similar to what happens a lot in churches. Um, we can fall into the trap of focusing so much on changing what we look like on the outside, our behavior, our dress, even how we talk, um, instead of changing our hearts, that we essentially rob Christianity of its sweetness, of its flavor, and ultimately of its joy. What we're talking about this morning is what it means to bear fruit. In our scripture this morning, uh, we could take a lot of different angles with this, but I want us to focus on the crucial difference between producing fruit and bearing fruit. I want to talk about how what we see on the outside is not always what's most important in life. Um, how God wants to transform us from the inside out so that we can bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, verses 1 through 5, he said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think most of us are familiar with this scripture. Um, however, some consider this text to be a mandate from Jesus to be a producer of fruit. Like Jesus is telling his disciples, um, you and I included, how important it is to get stuff done for the kingdom. Um, and if you don't, well, like in our scripture this morning, um, Jesus might show up one day and see that we haven't done enough and like just curse us. And so if you are an action-oriented person, like I tend to be, um, someone who likes to get things done, 
Um, this means like setting goals, achieving goals, seeing measurable results from our efforts, right? And making sure that we do what we need to do to produce enough fruit. Like that coupled with a strong work ethic, right? That get her done attitude. That's part of literally the cultural air that we breathe, right? Americans in general can be like this. Midwesterners even more so. Add to that the large number of Norwegian influence here in Fergus. You got a culture that is used to working hard and getting things done. Am I right? Right. But John 15 may not be about producing fruit at all. Over and over, Jesus uses the phrase, remain in me, remain in me, remain in me. Older translations say, abide in me. And there's a significant difference between producing fruit and bearing fruit. The former focuses on my work for God. The latter focuses on God's working in and through me. Jesus' call to remain or abide in him is less a call to action than it is an invitation to intimacy. So in this chapter, in John 15, Jesus uses the the phrase remain like 11 times. There is an undeniable connection between remaining in an intimate relationship with Jesus and the extent to which our lives will bear fruit. It's also important that we have some understanding of what Jesus means when he says fruit. Um, If the fruit of our life is always defined by the product of our labor, the work of our hands, the outcome of our own efforts, then we're missing the point. Jesus isn't demanding us to live a driven life of trying to do good things for God. Instead, he is inviting us into a relationship with him that is so deep, that is so intimate, that our life will be overflowing with his presence, with his love, with the sweetness of his spirit. As we spend more time intimately with Jesus, uh, we actually begin to bear three kinds of fruit. And they come in this order. Okay? First, the fruit of intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy with Jesus is its own fruit. Like, it is its own blessing. It's the most important fruit of all. The fruit of being in intimate relationship with Jesus. That's the first one. Then, as we spend more time in his presence, um, as we are submitting more and more to his will for our lives, um, the result is that he begins changing us from the inside out. Our character changes. Our demeanor changes. um, We become more resilient in the face of life's challenges. We begin taking on the qualities of the master. So this second fruit I'm talking about is the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Love, there's nine of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Older translations uh, use the word long-suffering. That's a good one instead of patience. Um, These are not things that we can initiate. These are not things that we can manufacture. Um, They come from being in Jesus' presence. Hence the difference between producing fruit and bearing fruit. The third kind of fruit uh, that we begin to bear is what God eventually starts doing through us. This is the fruit of kingdom impact. Um, But God God begins to show us, um, he begins to use us to show his love, to speak his words, to pray his prayers, to share his gospel, to begin to make disciples, to start to be a force for his kingdom in the world. But that's the order. It has to be in that order. The fruit of intimacy with Jesus, then the fruit of the Spirit, then the fruit of kingdom impact. It's not about what we're doing for him, it's about what he's doing in and through us. In fact, I would even go so far as to say this, in our uh, drivenness for doing, um, even for pleasing God, that may be one of our biggest obstacles to the Spirit's work within us. We become so busy uh, working for Jesus that we lose our first love, right? Our, our first fruit, intimacy with Jesus. Or we just get distracted with other things. It's interesting, when we do that, uh, when we lose intimacy with Jesus, then we start losing the fruit of character change, which means we begin coming, becoming less and less like Christ. Um, And finally, we stop making any real kingdom impact at all. We can become cynical, we can become jaded, we can become mistrusting or unforgiving or easy to anger or judgmental. Um, These are all all signs uh, that we need to spend more time with Jesus. We need to let him fill our cup once again with his presence. I've always found it fascinating. Um, The Bible says, essentially, that a third of the angels in heaven rebelled, right? And uh, they lost the battle, the war, and they were cast down to the earth. And essentially, um, those are horrific monstrosities that are now what we call the demonic. But, like, at one point, they were beautiful, Um, They worshiped the Lord. They served the Lord. um, They were magnificent. Lucifer as well. But anyone who uh, has seen the demonic, either in person or a vision, or maybe they've had a near-death experience, um, they always describe the demonic as like misshapen or ugly 
or monstrous or horrific, right? Why? How did they go from being beautiful to being monsters? It's because Jesus himself is the vine and we are the branches, right? He is the source of life itself. His presence is the source of beauty and love and life and every good thing that there is, every good thing that we can experience. Outside of his presence is only death, decay, and destruction. The, this idea of intimacy with Jesus um, helping us bear fruit, it's the imagery um, right out of Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, right? The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, right? that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Right? This is the opposite. This is the opposite of what sometimes happens in church. In many churches, there can definitely uh, be a pressure to appear as if everything's okay, like as if you and Jesus are like this. And what happens uh, when that's not the case, but we're sort of acting like it is, it's subtle at first, um, but then it gets worse over time. We focus less and less on what's on the inside and more and more on what's the, on the outside. Um, we focus less on having an intimate relationship with Jesus, and we start focusing more and more on outward behaviors checking all the right boxes. And before we know it, we're like those strawberries, um, looking good on the outside, but we've lost our sweetness on the inside. Or worse, uh, we're like one of those apples that looks okay until you bite into it and you realize it's all rotten on the inside. If you are finding that this is you, the key is to graft back into the vine, meaning the key is intimacy with Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing transforms us like his presence. So I want to talk a bit about what effect this has on um, us accomplishing our mission as a church. First, what is that mission? Okay. In short, it is to worship, glorify, and preach Jesus, right? It is to make disciples of Jesus, and it's to equip those disciples for kingdom ministry so that together we can bring the future reality of the kingdom of God into the present, all through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And all of that through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1 8, 
right? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How will we know when we've accomplished said mission? When the whole world confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? Right. So maybe <laughs> reaching the whole world is too big of a mission for Life Church. But we can start with Fergus Falls and the surrounding communities, right? And if we're going to accomplish this mission, uh, it means, among other things, that we really need to be focused on reaching people who are not currently following Jesus. So this concept of God transforming us from the inside out, um, not simply behavior management, not uh, just ticking the boxes, but remaining in Jesus and letting him transform us, help us bear fruit, not producing fruit, but bearing fruit. Um, this has great implications for the non-Christian who walks through that door of Life Church. Um, if we are a church that focuses more on the externals than the internals, right, we misrepresent the good news of the gospel, and we actually repel those people away from the source of life and grace and beauty. Jesus himself. Um, we may have good intentions, but when we focus on the externals first, we essentially are telling these people, um, you have to change this and this and this before God will forgive you. We are creating prerequisites for salvation. We may have good intentions, but when we subtly or maybe not so subtly tell people, you have to change this and this and this before you can become one of us. We are creating prerequisites for entering into Christian community. Um, when in reality, what they're working on may be all very visible, right? But while the things we need to work on may be very invisible. I want to talk about a word you've probably heard many times, um, but I think it gets misunderstood, and that word is repentance. The actual meaning of the English word repent um, is to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. Um, this is the same meaning of the Latin word, penit I always get it wrong, penitere, penitere? right, anyway. I didn't study Latin, but I did study French. Uh, it's the same as the French word, repentir. <laughs> uh, thank you. Our, our, our English word, repent, is derived from both of those words. Okay? The biblical word for repent, though, uh, is the Hebrew, naham, which means to be sorry, to regret, to comfort or console oneself. And then the Greek word, uh, metanoeo. It's to undergo, undergo a change in mind and feeling. Okay, the word implies a sorrow for sin and a humility before God. Repent. 
We see this uh, in the Gospels. We see this in the penitent tax collector who grieved over his sins, right? You see it in Luke 18. Who grieved over his sins and he cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. When he prayed that prayer, he had not yet changed any behavior. None. And yet Jesus states that because of his true repentance, he went home justified before God. Many churches, however, have redefined this word repent uh, to mean um, to stop sinning, to change your ways, and to turn and start moving towards God, right? Essentially what we're saying is fix yourself through your own strength and then start pursuing God again under your own strength. We're saying that before the great physician will accept you, before we will accept you, you need to get well first. And of course, what we're talking about is not truly getting well. We're talking about, um, we're not talking about a transformation from within, a transformation of the heart, right? We're focusing more on outward signs, outward changes, right? Behaviors and, and outward signs that show us that this person has become a good Christian. I don't think it's too strong to say that this is a perversion of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A perversion. That we have to clean up our lives first before Christ will accept us. That we have to clean up our lives first before the body, his body, the church, will accept us. Okay? We come up with some arbitrary list of external signs that the person is a good person, but None of that reflect that inside work that must precede the outside work. Okay, so why do we come up with these lists of, like, to determine who's in and who's out? Because they're easier to measure. Um, to see if there's an inner transformation of the heart in a person, you have to get really close to them. Um, you have to be in a close relationship with them um, so you can see the inner work that the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. It's interesting. I have met non-Christians who were more like Christ on the inside than some Christians. Um, they were more loving they were more quick to show grace. Um, they were less judgmental. They very easily gave sacrificially. Maybe on the outside, they had all kinds of things that they needed to work on, but on the inside, you could see the imago Dei, the image of God in that person. You could see that the Holy Spirit was already working on them, working on their lives and drawing them to the Savior. Another word that the church sometimes um, redefines is the word faith. 
Um, we find it hard to trust God to do his miraculous work in the hearts of those that he's drawing to himself. Um, we think that we have to intervene and we have to remind these people that um, it's not enough to believe with your heart. Um, or we tell them that faith in Christ means obeying God and doing his will. But the book of Romans tells us clearly that we can't obey Christ, we can't expect them to do his will until God inwardly transforms them and empowers them and renews them by his spirit. Okay? And that process takes time. Um, and it is an inside-out process. We can't change our ways until God changes our hearts. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9 say, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. It's only by our faith in what Jesus has done for us, right, embracing the finished work of the cross, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that transformation can happen. Um, when we come to faith in Christ, uh, I think most of you know this, we are fully justified before God, meaning um, his righteousness covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. Um, when God sees us, if we are in Christ, he no longer sees our sin. He only sees Christ's righteousness. The theological term for this is justification, or even more specifically, justification by faith. However, when I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, do I suddenly now stop sinning? Like, am I just like instantly Jesus? Nope. <laughs> uh, by the grace of God, there may be some things, I think most of you can relate to this, there may be some things that he changes in me in an instant. But most of the things take time. And some things, I would argue, uh, won't change this side of heaven. That, that, that theological concept is called entire sanctification, and those who believe it believe that it is possible to get to a point where we are completely holy and we no longer sin. I haven't seen it. One person told me that they were entirely sanctified, but I, I laughed because as soon as they said it, they committed the sin of pride and they failed the test, so... <laughs> because you would never say it, right? It'd be, it's too much, anyway. <laughs> uh, so the most mature Christians I've known um, who've been walking with the Lord for decades um, have always had a sober realization of how far they still have to go to become more like Christ. So the theological term for this process that comes after justification 
This process of becoming more and more holy, this process of becoming more and more like Christ is called sanctification. It comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. Sanctification. And that's always, always, always an inside-out work. And it takes time. So I've talked about us being a community of grace many times since I um, came to Life Church, um, where people, no matter what their background is, no matter what they're struggling with, um, that they are accepted right where they are, and that we come alongside one another in relationship, in love, and walk together towards Jesus, um, towards looking more like Jesus towards um, growing in Jesus, towards discovering our calling in the kingdom. Because, like I said, sanctification is an inside-out process, a process that can take a lifetime. Because sanctification is an inner work that only the Holy Spirit can do, What we see on the outside may not be as important as what God is doing on the inside. I'll say that again. I think I, yeah, there it is. What we see on the outside may not be as important as what God is doing on the inside. The thing God might be working on us uh, might be completely unseen to everyone else. So consider for a moment the butterfly. Talked about butterflies before. The butterfly is the very picture of transformation. It goes from caterpillar that crawls and scoots around. Um, Obviously, it can't go very far, um, can't see very far. That's kind of plain and simple. It goes from that to this beautiful, colorful creature uh, with wings. Now has the ability to fly. It now has the ability to see so much farther than it ever could before. But in order to go through this transformation, it must first go into a cocoon, a, a chrysalis, pupa, whatever you want to call it. And that cocoon can look like a prison. Um, It looks like all activity has stopped. Um, The caterpillar went from slow moving to no moving. Um, And to anyone who's looking at it from the outside, it would seem like nothing's happening. I mean, a, a caterpillar has enough limits. Like, why would it want to limit itself even further? But the cocoon is the place of transformation. It is the place of rebirth. Um, The cocoon is that place where the caterpillar surrenders all of its own will, its own efforts, its striving, and it allows itself to be transformed. Similarly, It is in the quiet places with Jesus, in prayer, in his word, in worship, in being out in his creation, 
Wherever we can experience his presence, that is where we are transformed. And God wants to transform us from the inside out. And it goes back to this idea of bearing fruit instead of producing fruit. I want you to ask yourself this morning, have you been bearing fruit or trying to produce fruit in your life? And where are you at in terms of the three kinds of fruit? The first one, which is the fruit of, the, of intimacy with Jesus, which then leads to the second, which is having more of the fruit of the Spirit, which then leads to the third, which is having more fruit of kingdom impact. If intimacy with Jesus is the key to everything, and it is, like, again, in Psalm 1, you're like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Right? Or like in John 15, where you are a branch connected to the vine of Jesus. If intimacy with Jesus is our very source of life, of beauty, of power, then where are you at with that? What's your next step? Your next step might not be something anyone will see, but it might absolutely be the key to everything. Jesus is calling every one of us into the deeper waters of his presence. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the sovereign ruler of the whole universe absolutely loves you. His eye is on the creation of planets and stars and galaxies. Um, his eye is on the formation of every life in its mother's womb. And his eye is on everything in between, from the macro to the micro. Right? And yet, he wants you. Um, he longs to be with you. He longs to meet with you, um, to hear you pour out your heart to him, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've always joked, like, God is large and in charge. He can take your anger. He can take your disappointment. He can take your cries. He can take all of it. Don't feel like you have to pretend with God. Just be yourself. He longs to comfort you. He longs to strengthen you. He longs to transform you and to give you his peace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that while you are the sovereign ruler of the universe, you still love and want to have an intimate relationship with each one of us. God, I pray for each person hearing my voice that you would draw them into an even deeper and more intimate relationship with you. May we be people who go deep with you, who uh, regularly draw on your strength when we go to those quiet places to meet with you, speak to you, to be empowered by you, 
and to be transformed by you. Pray too, Lord, that you would continue to draw the lost, the last, and the least to Life Church. We know you have a special place in your heart for these people. We know that you call your church to reach those people, to love on them, share the gospel with them, to make disciples of Jesus. I pray, God, that when these people encounter this body of believers, that they would experience grace and love and humility, that they would feel like they encountered Jesus himself. Lord, none of us deserve what you so freely give. We're all here because of your grace. May we be a people that truly are being transformed from the inside out by your presence. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.